You let half my audience go. That's not fair. Gosh. You let all the fun go. I'd rather preach, preach to a bunch of children. They pay attention. You show them a picture story and they remember it. My name is Roger Boguski, and he got it right. No goose. No goose. I'm always correcting people. It's G-U-S, Gus. There's no goose in there, please. My wife, Ann, is sitting back there. Raise your hand, Ann. That's my evangelist. She brought me to Jesus Christ. She had the faith to believe if there was somebody going to hell, for sure. He's speaking to you right now. I was in the Marines, fought in Vietnam, came back, was a police officer in Connecticut. So if I look familiar, just think back to Connecticut if you got pulled over. There you go. My badge number was 13, so it should come back to you instantly. And um, she was privileged to lead me to Christ. Uh, first couple of years was really tough being married to a saved woman. That's tough. I'm going to tell you. Some of you guys probably can agree with me on that, but... And um, since that day, August 27, 1972, 12.30 p.m., 220 Shore Drive, Guilford, Connecticut, 06437, sitting in a green chair looking out the window at a lake. How do I remember that? I was there, and uh, my life changed. And now I'm in Jewish ministries. My grandmother was Jewish. Her entire family were killed in a pogrom in southern Poland in the late 1890s. And um, we didn't know much about that until I was in Jewish ministries, then I found out. So I'm one of your missionaries. I go to the Jewish people, and uh, they're really hard. God has blinded their eyes. God has blinded their hearts. Satan has blinded their minds. So the people I work with, and I say this with love, are deaf, dumb, and blind. Okay? When you show them a verse of Scripture and you say, what is that saying? They go, I don't know. What's it saying to you? They really can't see it until 1 Corinthians 4. They say, Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Mashiach. He's the coming one. Once they say that, the blinders are off. And they go, wow. But until that time, it's really tough. I'm going to be speaking to you today. My subject and title, if you're recording this, is the upper room. When it comes to this table, it's very precious to me. Very precious to the Lord. His last supper is right here. Uh, This is the Lord's table. First uh, Corinthians eleven twenty. It's called the Korea Khan in Hebrew. I'm going to be using some Hebrew and Greek words. So if I, if I lose it, raise your hand. OK. And your pastor will straighten you right. I'll come over, tap you on the shoulder and say, don't raise your hand again. <laughs> and because uh, it gets very confusing. But the word Korea Khan in Greek means he owns it lock, stock and barrel. That word's only used two times in your Bible. First Corinthians eleven twenty, which they'll probably get to in the community service. And Revelation 1.10, when John said he was caught up in the spirit on the Lord's day. Okay? Friday is the day for Muslims. Saturday is the day for Jewish people. Sunday is the day for Christians. Why are we worshiping today? It's the resurrection day. Okay? Today happens to be Palm Sunday, although I believe he was Palm Monday when he rode into Jerusalem. And that's another day, another lesson. But six days, John 12... From the Passover was Monday, but let's leave that alone for right now. Why don't you turn your Bible, if you have one, to Luke 22, 7 through 13. We're going to read that together before I begin. Now, if I were to take you into a synagogue, there would be a room right here called the Ark. And inside would be scrolls. 
And the rabbi would go up there and he would take out a scroll and uh, he would come down onto the floor and walk all around up and down the aisles. And a lot of the Jewish men would be wearing prayer shawls with tzitzit on them, their fringes down the sides. With, many of them would have a blue thread in there and they would kiss them and touch those scrolls. They went by and he'd come down there to the bima. We talk about the bima for the Lord, the bima. And he would open the scroll. And as soon as he opened the scroll, everybody would stand to their feet. Now, in churches, we say, let's stand to our feet and give honor to the reading of God's word. Not in the synagogue. They just automatically stand to their feet when they open the scroll. And he takes a yud, which means hand, silver or gold. And he doesn't touch the scroll. He begins to point to the words as he reads right to left. Okay? Now, over that arc are these words in Hebrew, da lefnai mi ata omed, know before whom you stand. Now, who are you standing before? Almighty God. So when you open this word, whose word is this? Not mine. It's God's word. I believe in verbal plenary inspiration. That means every word in here is inspired, and the whole thing is inspired, the whole enchilada. And if it says Holy Bible on the cover, the cover's inspired. Okay? So this ain't my word. It's God's word. So what I'm going to bring you today is from God's word to you. I've already prayed and said, Holy Spirit, they don't know who I am. I'm just what they call the crazy Pollock. Okay? Sometimes I get in a conversation with him and he goes, Pollock, sit down. I got something to say. Okay, Lord. I mean, we're on very intimate terms, him and I. We are. And, uh, so we're going to read, and I'm going to ask you to stand in a second, and we're going to read the Word of God. This is His Word, not mine, okay? And we're going to talk about the upper room where this took place, okay? And I'm hoping my prayer today, I'm going to make sure I don't walk too far because I'll fall off. My hope today is you take something with you, not the whole message. One thing, if you walk out that door with one thing you didn't know before you walked in, Praise the Lord. It was a good morning. One thing. Not the whole thing, just one thing. Say, I never knew that before. Thank you, Jesus. That's what I prayed for, Lord. Give them all one thing, just something. Just a little bite. That's all. Okay? Then it was a good day. All right? Now, let's give honor to the word of God by standing. Okay? Now I'm going to start at verse number seven. I'm using the King James Version. I know you don't have to use the King James Version to get to heaven. Now, why anybody would want to take a chance on something like that is beyond me, but that's the one I'm going to use, okay? My preference, okay? That's what I have. You follow along with whatever you got or listen. Ready? Verse 7. Then came the day of unleavened bread when the Passover must be killed. You're referring to that lamb. We'll talk about him. And he sent Peter and John, saying, Go and pre- prepare the Passover for us that we may eat. And they said unto him, Where wilt thou that we prepare it? And he said unto them, Behold, when you are entered into the city, ah, you got this city bench up here. That's really good. Thank you for preparing them for me. Behold, when you are entered into the city, There shall a man meet you bearing a pitcher of water. Follow him into the house where he enters in. And he shall say, and you shall say unto the owner or 
uh, the good man of the house, the master said unto thee, where is the guest room or guest chamber where I shall eat the Passover with my disciples? And he shall show you a large upper room furnished. There make ready. And they went and found as he had said unto them, and they made ready the Passover. Pray with me. Father, this is your word. This is a man's word. This is your holy Bible, your word, which you inspired Luke, that physician, to write for us 2,000 years ago, that we may hold in our hand the holy Bible. Father, I'm asking the Holy Spirit, the Ruach HaKodesh, to teach us today from your word. Speak to our hearts before we partake of this beautiful, beautiful communion service. In the name of Yeshua HaMashiach, Jesus the Messiah, I pray. Amen. You may be seated. A large upper room. In your Bible, verse number 12, underline that. Maybe you don't do that. I do a lot of that in my Bible. A large upper room. This is not unusual. In fact, it is quite normal to have an upper room, a guest room, or a guest chamber. A room high above. It's 10 minutes to 12. Do I have 11 minutes left? I don't see a clock. I just see Roger Bogusky, Palm Sunday. <clears throat> you know, I don't know what your clock says or what your time is. I mean, I've been in churches where the pastor says, you got seven, you got seven minutes. And I went, Really? And I went like this. Okay, this is my message. I'm just going to tell you a little about my ministry and go home. And I did. And the church members about hung him outside when I left. He called me on the phone. He said, brother, come back next week. You got all the time you want, please. What do you do with seven minutes? What do you do with seven minutes? You know, I know the children are downstairs and at 12 o'clock, they're going to kill those workers down there. But anyway. A room way up there, high above the noise and the hustle and bustle of the street below. A room where the dust and stench from the animals and people could not infiltrate. A room above the sounds of the household activities below. A room where the cool evening breezes could gently blow through the windows from the Mediterranean Sea. You mean all the way from the Mediterranean? Yes. I've been in those rooms. A room to entertain your guests, your relatives, and your friends, and even your family. It was not an ordinary room where the family gathered socially. It was a room where one would go for a quieting of the mind and the spirit. A very important room. I'm trying to draw you a picture. A room for meditation and deep spiritual reflection where you might hear God's voice. There's a lot of this commotion today in the media where Mike Pence heard God speaking to him. Ha, ha, ha. Listen, I hear God's voice. If you're in this book, John 10, 27 says, you will hear God's voice. A room for meditation and spiritual reflection, an upper room far above the hustle and bustle of daily life in Jerusalem. David had an upper room where he wept when he heard Absalom had died. Second Samuel 18.33, an upper chamber over the gate. Of course, his favorite spot was an upper roof until he 
gazed upon Bathsheba. Her name was really Sheba, but she liked to take baths, so they called her Bathsheba. No, that's not really true. Elijah had an upper room where he took the widow of Zarephath's son when he resurrected him, 1 Kings 17, 19. His loft in 1723, his chamber. Elijah, Elijah's disciple had an upper room that the Shunammite woman made for him with a table and a lamp and a chair and a bed, 2 Kings 4.10. Later, in 2 Kings 4.31, her son dies, and Elisha returns to his upper room to resurrect him from the dead. Very, very interesting account. You ought to go read it. Most of the kings had upper rooms where they built altars to their gods. Very important. 2 Kings 23.12 says, Ahaz and Manasseh built them, and Josiah... The good king tore them all down. In fact, 2 Kings 1-2 says, Ahaziah fell out of his upper room and later died. Remember that story? We talked about it last year with the 153 fish. Remember, Peter dragged the net up and there was 153 fish. Why? I told you why last year. I'm not going to go into it. Get the tape. They're on sale, $12.95. Cute. So... Uppers were sort of standard among kings and prophets and peasants, a place to be alone, quiet, and close to God, and erect an altar for worship. Very important. Let me ask you a question. Do you have one? Do you have an upper room, a place where you can get alone with God to pray and hear his voice, a closet, a chamber, a place of spiritual nourishment, Matthew 6, 6. The room is called a Tamion, a storage chamber. You should have one. Should have a place you can go, shut the door, lock it, in fact. See, that was the problem with Adam and Eve in the garden. The Hebrew word is gone. It means an enclosed garden with a gate. Somebody left the gate open. And the guest came in. His name was Satan. A place to quiet the mind, the spirit, and the soul. The most important room in your house. That's what Jesus desired for his last night on earth with his closest friends. For his last supper. A quiet place. I love Psalm 1610. Be still and what? No. Know him. Yada. Hebrew word is yada. You know what that word means? Intimacy. Adam yada Eve and she had a baby. Would you call that intimate? Check it this way. God says, I want that. I want that kind of intimacy. Spiritually. Don't make it dirty. Spiritually. Hosea 6.3, he says, then Israel... You will know me when you follow on to know me. You know what the problem is? I have. They know all about God, but they don't know what? God. Oh, they know all about him, but they don't know him. They know what I find in the church today? Christians know all about Jesus, but they don't know You won't really come to know Jesus until you have a crisis experience in your life. Amen. 
and then you'll find Jesus. I shared something downstairs in a Chinese language. The word crisis means what? Made up of two words. Thank you very much. There was one person down there paying attention. <laughs> My grandkids are taking Chinese in elementary school. I go, wow, we were taking English when I went to elementary school. It was Thursday afternoon. Thursday. And over 200,000 people in Jerusalem swelled to over 2 million. The streets were packed. The homes were crowded. The temple was a bazaar. The market was flooded. The women were hurrying and scurrying about gathering water because, listen, it was illegal to get water on Friday. In fact, it was unlawful to do much of anything on Friday because it was a high holy day before Passover, except fast and pray. Jesus, in our text, sends his most trusted apostles, Peter and John, into the city to find what? Look at it. Look at it. Verse 10. Behold, when you enter into the city, there will be a what? A man. It was a woman's job to collect water. Never a man. But you're going to find a man with a water pot. Two million people. One man with a water pot. He'll be easy to find. You'll find a man with a water pot. Not a woman. In the streets of Jerusalem. Probably the water that's going to be used to wash the feet of the disciples in John 13, 5. This man would lead them to his home and show them the upper room. And it all started with a man carrying a water pitcher. What a privilege to prepare the Last Supper. For the creator of the universe. Don't ever take preparing communion as a task. That is the greatest of all privileges right there. Within the body of Christ. Right there. That one. The greatest of all. Peter and John didn't take it as a task. Mm -mm. No, they didn't. It's a privilege and the greatest of all privileges to prepare communion. It should be done in the spirit of prayer and adoration, both before and after. You should sit down right there and pray before you start setting that table. You ought to read over 1 Corinthians 11. This is a spiritual event. And you want to get your mind in a spiritual attitude. And when it's all done, before you take it all apart and put it away, you need to sit down, whoever's doing it, and pray. Because Jesus Christ is here. He's the guest today. I don't know about you, but my Bible says he's omnipresent. What's that mean? He's right here, right now. He's sitting right next to you. He's also omniscient. What's that mean? He knows everything. He knows what you're thinking right now. That guy up there in that jacket and that tie, he's a little crazy. (laughs) 
He's also omnipotent. That means what? He can do anything he wants. He's God. Amen. Can he fix Maya? Shake it this way. Three years old with cancer. I have a name down. Man, can you fix her? Like that. Oh, yeah. He's also omnificent. Ooh, what's that word? We never hear about that one. It's in your dictionary. He's all creative. He can speak worlds into existence. I love the story about that little boy. He's about five years old. He's playing with his two friends. And his mother says, come on in. Time for a snack. One piece of chocolate cake. And his mother goes, cut that, honey, for your two friends. And he's looking at the cake. I cut that. He gets one. I don't get any. His mother knows what he's thinking. And she says, honey, what would Jesus do? He said, well, it's easy. Jesus was here. He'd just say, chocolate cake, and it'd be a whole cake on the table. Because <laughs> <laughs> Jesus is omnipotent. <laughs> That's the kind of Jesus you serve. He's right here. This is his table. Korea Khan, he owns it, lock, stock, and barrel, two times. This is his day, this is his table, you're going to partake. Don't take these elements lightly. He's here as the honored guest. He wants you to think of him when you take the bread and you take the cup. He set this up for you. Ooh, I wish I had time to really get into the elements. Oh, oh my goodness gracious, what we're doing I don't think many of us really understand what we're doing. What a privilege to set it up. Peter and John were obviously trusted stewards and very handy in the kitchen. I love to be in the kitchen. 105 apples I just peeled and sliced. She made 13 apple pies for a wedding yesterday. That's crazy. That's insane. I love to be in the kitchen. Peter and John were good cooks. They were in the kitchen. But it should be done in a spirit of prayer and adoration. That they prepared the room, the meal, all the fixings. They were led to a normal stone home in Jerusalem. They climbed some very narrow winding steps to the top of the house. They entered a large room. The likes of which Jesus probably never used before. We've been there. I want you to come with me. We're climbing up these steps, and they're windy. As they go up and kind of circle around, and they go up to this room. It's a large room. We entered the room. I mean, it's really high ceilings, twice as high as these, and they're kind of curved, and there's some columns in the room. And the room is bigger than this, and it's divided into three naves, and there's, there's a couple of large, like, fireplaces. I guess you could put an animal in there and kind of roast them on a spit. Big room, very, very big. Probably used as a church or maybe a synagogue hundreds of years, maybe 1,000, 1,500 years ago. Big room. And there's windows, but there's no glass in it, just windows. Air can flow right through. Huge, huge room. Above David's tomb underneath. Very interesting. Huge room. Now, 
It was a large room, verse 12, mega guest chamber. Probably the room where Jesus first appeared to his disciples and showed them, remember, his hands and his feet? I mean, he came right through the wall. He just walked right through the wall. And they're scared. And he said, do you have anything to eat? Because the spirit doesn't eat. He ate. In probably the same room, Jesus appeared eight days later with Thomas. Didymus, twin. He had a twin brother. And Thomas said, I'm not going to believe unless I stick my finger in a hole and trust my hand in his side. Remember the story? And Jesus walks right over to him and he says, here you go, Tommy boy. Stick your finger in a hole. Trust your hand in my side, but don't doubt me. Because Thomas said, seeing is believing. Jesus said, oh, no. Believing is seeing. It's the way it was with me. I don't, I don't remember exactly what happened. I was at a very liberal church. And I had a gun and a badge on it. I didn't go anywhere without a gun. In Connecticut, they have a blue law. If you're a male, you better pack a gun in church. Because if you didn't, you could get arrested. And that verbal man was preaching. I don't know what he said. But I remember his illustration about a painter went into the street. He found a peasant woman and put her on a stool and he's going to paint her portrait. He's getting a picture ready, getting her. And over here is a portrait of Jesus with everything but the face. He couldn't get the face right. And she starts asking him questions about that painting. And he's explaining the spit and the nails and the spear and the whip and all that kind of stuff as he's getting the canvas ready. And he turns to her and tears are running down her face. And he said, why are you crying? And she said, all that your Jesus did for you, what have you ever done for him? Wow. Now, I hadn't cried in six years. I sent 19 of my very best friends home in Ziploc body bags from Vietnam. And none of them were 20 years old. None of them. I came home to find my grandmother, who I loved, dying in a hospital bed in a coma. I sat there for an hour holding her hand. I left the room. She died. My mother, my aunt said, she stayed alive to make sure you got home. I knelt at her coffin for 30 minutes. I could not cry. Six years. No tears. All this your Jesus did for you. What have you ever done for him? The Holy Spirit took a spear and just shoved it right through my heart. And tears began to run down my cheeks. And that woman saw him. And she knew right then and there something's going on inside of this old Marine. And she said, something bothering you? I said, yep. She said, you want to talk about it? I said, nope. And we drove all the way home. Sitting in that green chair. Out that window. She said, something's really bothering you. And I said, yeah. She said, would you like to ask Jesus Christ into your heart and life right now? I said, I think I would. How do I do that? She said, I don't know. I never did it with anybody before. Big help. <laughs> I said, what do we do? She said, I think we pray. I said, okay, you first. She prayed. I prayed. I don't know what I prayed. I think I prayed, Lord, 
save me. Just like the guy on the cross. Remember what he said? Lord, remember me. And Jesus said, there you'll be with me. And he saved me right then and there. And I have never been the same since. Never. I'm sorry, Pastor. I keep walking away from this thing. You told me to take it with you. I'll probably take it home with me. That's what I'll remember. I'm getting some timers once in a while. But this is the same room that Jesus ascended when he ascended on the Mount of Olives came to. The 120 went back to and gathered in that room. You know what always bothered me? What happened to the 380? Where'd they go? The majority is never right. 380 just disappeared. 120 is in the upper room. So it was a large room. Secondly, it was a special room. It's believed to be the same room the early church gathered to pray for Peter, who was about to be killed in Acts chapter 12, following the apostle James, who was executed by Herod. If that's true, and we have reason to believe it is, then it's in the home of, listen, John Mark, because it was his father who was carrying the water pot. Think on that for a minute. Also, John Mark is Barnabas' nephew, according to Colossians 4.10 and Acts 12.12, making his mother Barnabas' sister. Oh, the plot begins to thicken. Therefore, Paul and Barnabas were in that upper room over John Mark's home, praying for Peter when he was released. And by the way, Acts 12.12 would make John Mark's mother's name Mary. Oh, really? Hmm. Therefore, Paul and Barnabas were in that room praying when there was a knock on the door and a young lady ran to the door and her name was Rhoda. Who would that be? John Mark's sister. Roger, you really put this together. Mm. Barnabas would naturally be staying with his sister and when they came to get John Mark in Acts 1225, and he went off on a mission trip with him. Most likely was also the place that was shaken in Acts 431 because the next verse talks about Barnabas. But whatever you believe, it was a special room, not only to the family, but to Jesus Christ and especially the early church, which meant there was often prayer, fellowship, worship, and breaking of bread going on in that room. Special room. I hope you have one. A large room. A special room. An upper room, verse 12. High above the hustle and bustle of the street. High above the noise, the dust, the stench, the animals in the street. Not to mention the raw sewage. Two million people. Lots of it. High enough to catch those cool breezes from the Mediterranean. High enough to see Calvary, Gethsemane, the Mount of Olives, the temple, the city of Jerusalem. It was an upper room where one could get alone with God and commune with him or entertain the closest friends. It was a guest room, a guest chamber in verse 11. It was, best of all, it was the largest room in the house. Strange since Jesus had no place to lay his head and there was no room for him in the inn at his birth. A room for entertaining guests, a guest chamber, 
as it's called. The greatest of all guests was coming to use it just before his death to leave the greatest of all memorials, communion, which we're going to partake of in just a matter of a few minutes. It was a furnished room. The room gives evidence of wealth or some wealth because of the wood word furnished means laid out with carpets. But there's one more item of furniture in that room. Way off in the corner, in front of a window, there's an item of furniture. It's elevated, it's plain, it's alone, it's unobtrusive, rough and crude. If you look carefully, you'll see it in front of the window. It's an altar for prayer and worship, a place to go and kneel down. Remember the kings and prophets, they all had one. There was a, it's a normal piece of furniture in the upper room. The room was accustomed to the sound of prayer to Jehovah Elohim by John Mark, by his mother Mary, by his father John, by his uncle Barnabas, by his sister Rhoda, by the 120, by the believers praying for Peter, by the guests they entertained. It was the throne room of the heart of the man of God who dwelt in his home. Is it any wonder John Mark went off to the mission field with Paul and Barnabas? You say, what? What possessed him to go to the field? Oh, to have a guest chamber, a prophet's chamber to entertain saints and servants of Jehovah in your home. To have their prayers dripping off your walls and your children and grandchildren. To have the foundations of your house shaken by the power of the Holy Spirit through prayer. To have tongues of fire dancing in and around your home from the Holy Spirit of God. Oh, my friend, how we need guest chambers in our homes to entertain his servants and his saints, his bond slaves for his glory. A prophet's chamber. Do you have one? It was an equipped room. Not only were there furnishings in, the, in place, but all the utensils were there. All the food, all the matzah. The lamb. By the way, when they took a lamb in that temple, somebody was asking me about the shofar. They killed 260,000 during two days. And they would line up 30, and they would blow a shofar. And they would bring in 30. They would cut the throats, and they would drain the blood, and they would gut them, and they would skin them. And then they would take a pomegranate stick and stick it right through the lamb, and they would take another pomegranate stick across the inside of the shoulders and tie it. Inside of every lamb was a cross. And then they would carry that lamb and they would have to roast it on an open spit. Our church starts every single service with one of these. Three times. That's a call to worship. You can hear it throughout the church, outside, all over the place. We had a police officer who would blow a big one, an antelope horn, and he'd been called media at that time, so we just have it going over the loudspeakers. 30 at a time, 260,000. The blood would run down a trough into the Kidron River. And when Jesus went down from the upper room to go up into the Garden of Gethsemane, he crossed that bloody river. Blood just babbling and bubbling, going down. 
unbelievable. It was an equip room. Everything was ready for the master. Peter and John and John Mark's family had done their job. Everything was set for the guests to arrive for the Lord's Supper. With his closest friends, his disciples, his mate taste, miniature Christs. Salvation, remember, eternal life, being born again, is, is absolutely free. And it's as simple as A, B, C, A. Acknowledge you're a sinner. Sin is anything less than perfection and thought, word, or deed. Everybody in this room is a sinner. Everybody. You don't pass that test. But you have to do something about it. You have to repent. That means you have to turn from it. Metanaeo means to change the mind. I was in Bible college when a professor was explaining repentance. He said, I put a little two-year-old child on a table and I say, jump. When does he put his faith and trust in me? When he leaves the table, when he's in the air, when I catch him, or when he makes up in his mind he's going to do it. And I said, oh my goodness. I had this feeling that when I walked that aisle and fell down here, a broken man, and four men had to carry me out of the church. That's when I got saved. I went home and I told that woman, I said, you led me to Christ on August 27th. It wasn't when I fell down there. It's when I changed my mind and got out of Savior business sitting in that green chair, and said, Lord, save me. That's when it happened. And I called upon the Lord, and I changed my mind. Acknowledged I was a sinner and repented of my sin. It happened right there. When did it happen on the thief on the cross? Lord, remember me. He said, what? Oh, after you go forward, after you get baptized, after you get 10,000. No, he said, what? Today, you'll be with me. One sinner was saved so that no one would despair, but only one so nobody would presuppose. We're all going to make it. No, we're not. Salvation is one at a time. Discipleship. Oh, my. Now, discipleship's another story. It's a little harder. You have to deny yourself. Completely, totally, undeniably. And then you have to pick up the cross once. Pick it up. Pick it up. And never set it down. And follow him day by day. Step by step. Moment by moment. That's another story. See, anybody can join the Marines. Just raise your hand, take the oath. It's getting through boot camp. It's getting through ITR. It's getting through forced recon. It's getting through radar training. That proves your metal. Yes, it was a large room. It was a special room. It was an upper room. It was a guest room. It was a furnished room. It was an equipped room. But there's one more, and I need to share this. It was a prepared room. It was cleaned. It was carpeted. It was cushioned. It was equipped. However, it was a prepared room, hetoimas. And that brings a different idea. It was cleansed. To be clean is one thing. To be cleansed is quite another One is exterior, one is interior. You can be clean on the outside, but filthy, dirty on the inside. A bath will clean you, but it will not cleanse you. Only the blood of Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, will do that. The owner of the home, the upper room, John Mark's father, he would take a candle and three feathers and a wooden spoon and a cloth, and he would search the house and look for all the leaven he could find and Scrape it up, clean it out. But just one crumb of leaven represented sin. 
In fact, they would take a linen napkin, a sudarion, similar to this, and go around and scrape it all up and put it on a napkin with that wooden spoon and take it out and throw it into a fire and burn it up, representing all the sin in that house. A cleanse room, why? Because no sin was allowed in the presence of a holy, perfect, sinless God, especially on an occasion such as this. Somebody asked me one day, what's worse than hell? I said, standing in the presence of a holy, almighty God with one sin in your life. Why did he cry from the cross, Eli, Eli, son of Shabachthanon? Why? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because of the infinite wrath of God. All you want to do is stand before God in your flesh and give an answer to God. Oh, when I see Big Daddy in the sky, I've got some things to share with him. No, you don't. You're going down, brother. You're not going to stand in front of anybody and give an answer. Nobody. Nobody. You're in a lot of trouble. A prepared room, a cleansed room as well as clean, cleansed as well as carpeted, cleansed as well as cleansed as well as equipped. The place where holy communion, the Lord's table, the Eucharist, koinonia, the breaking of bread was born. Should we, my friend, not have in our lives and hearts a large place for the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit to live and dwell? A place above the hustle and bustle and dust and stench of daily life. A place set aside for honor, divine, holy, heavenly guests. A place furnished with the wealth of our spirit's humility. A place equipped and ready to break bread with Jesus himself. He's here. A place to wash the filth from our feet before we step on his holy ground. Maybe we should all take our shoes off today. A place prepared especially for his coming by cleansing every new particle of our sinful, lustful desires. It's in the upper room of our hearts prepared and ready, is it? That's the Lord's Supper. May once again be eaten, where the Holy Spirit may once again be renewed afresh. Let's get room ready. Let's set the table. Let's prepare the meal. Let's fill the napkins. Let's fill the water basins. Let's get ready for communion.